Five key findings about Americans' view on abortion. And then later on... The SBC released its sexual abuse list. And later, we're joined by Patty Garibay, founder of American Heritage Girls. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. It is Hump Day. It is Hump Wednesday. Day. Glad to have you with us today. If you missed any of our shows this week, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. Aubrey, how are you on this Hump Day today? I'm doing wonderfully. My kids. Uh, that today was their last full day of school, so tomorrow is a half day, and then we are done. It's officially summer. So I'm. I'm feeling ready. I don't even want to send him to school tomorrow, honestly, but I'll make him go. But what's the How point? long over under July 1st when you're longing for the structure of school? Yeah, I, <laughs> you know, you might prove me wrong here, but I actually really like my kids home in the summer. I really I enjoy too. it. Yeah, I, I just I like them around. I I know that sounds insane, but I do. I let I love not having to worry about getting everyone up and out the doors in the morning. I love kind of not knowing what day of the week it is, you know, and not like needing to rush or be anywhere. So I'm always a little sad when they go back in August. I'm not going to lie. That's nice. You're a good mom. I agree. I feel the same way. Mike Carey has always felt that way. Like, no, I don't want you going back. Yeah, it's fun to have uh, around. Summer is almost upon us. My kids still have a good six days left. But as I said... My daughter today was on a field trip to the yeah. King County Cougars. My son is going to Great America still. So to say they're still in school is a like little school. bit of an overstatement right, right now. stretch there. <laughs> so, but yeah, summer is upon us. We hope you've got great plans coming forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a really good summer. All right, Aubrey, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot on this show, and it has been since we started the show, but especially – uh, recently, with that leak from the Supreme Court decision, yeah. uh, the pending Supreme Court decision on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, yeah. uh, the question has become abortion. What are we as a culture going to be? What will the laws be? But also, what do people kind of think? And there was some real interesting findings. So here's what I want to do. I just want to read some of these findings. This is from Dan Darling. Uh, Dan is written here at the Land Center for Cultural Engagement, and it's just entitled this, Five Key Findings from the Land Center Survey of Americans on Abortion. And so they surveyed uh, almost 1,200 Americans about their views on abortion from across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum. Uh, And so not an enormous number of people, but they tried to get a wide range. And so let me just read to you some of their findings, Aubrey, and then I would love for you to pick whichever one jumps out to you. Number one, a majority of Americans favor significant restrictions on abortion. Only 26% of Americans favor a total ban on abortion, but 41% favor restrictions after the sixth week of pregnancy, 52% after the 12th week of pregnancy, 59% uh, favor a ban after 15 weeks and 65% after 20 weeks. So there's a lot more nuance in it right now than than maybe what we're told in the media. That's the first one. The second yeah. one, a majority of, Mer- of Americans see life in the womb. Uh, it says few surveys on abortion ask the question we ask, when does life begin? And the interesting, the answers were interesting. 35% of Americans believe it begins at conception. Another 28% believe life begins at the detection of the first heartbeat. Uh, and so they basically said that means 66% of Americans understand the unborn baby to be a distinct human person. Mm. Again, different than what we hear. Number yep. three, a majority of Americans oppose elective abortion based on economic hardship or ender preference. The majority of Americans, 78%, feel abortion should be legal if the mother's life is in danger in the case or of rape, incest, or if the child wouldn't survive or has severe disabilities. But only 37% of Americans support abortion if the mother simply doesn't want the abortion. So that there mm. you got that one. Number four, Americans are thinking about a post-Roe future. Hmm. Uh, 52% uh, don't favor overturning Roe versus Wade, but people are thinking about what, what it will look like without it. And number five, pro-life views begin in church. Uh, hmm. LifeWay's research model defines evangelical much more narrowly 
so it's no surprise that evangelicals are the cohort who is the most pro-life. 66% of evangelicals believe life begins at conception uh, and so on versus our culture, which is much different. So those are five yeah. interesting findings. Yeah. And one reason I wanted to start here is because so much is about rhetoric right now. And so much mm -hmm. is about, you know, back and forth and just kind of guesses. But this is some hard data about where yeah. people are at. Did any of those stand out to you? Well, I, I would say in general, not one stood out to me, but like you said, all of them stood out to me because I do mm. think even I have believed based on what you hear on social media or even in pop culture, uh, that people are way more pro-abortion at any stage in the game than these. Mm -hmm. this data seems to say. And That's so right. in one sense, I actually think like this is helpful to sort of know those of us who are pro-life are not alone in that. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's not, I don't think we need to be like freaking out like, oh, okay, actually there might be more people that are, that are pro-life or at least um, a little, they want, um, uh, they don't want abortion like full stop. Like they want some restrictions right. around it. And then I, I think the other piece that was really helpful and interesting to me was that uh, it does, pro-life views do begin in the church. And so I think that mm. that shows us sort of our responsibility as Christians to, of course, lovingly, gracefully, with mercy, um, continue to to express why we are pro-life. And mm. perhaps that if, you know, we have an understanding about the value of, of humanity, the value of life, the value of God creating each and every person at conception, that people just might need to hear that that's a thought, that's a belief, you know, and, um, yeah. and the church can be leading the way in this conversation. I think, um, I think to me, it just says we don't necessarily have to be afraid. We just can keep doing what we've been doing and, and fighting for our fighting with mercy and grace for our pro-life yeah. stances. So interestingly, I got a chance to be a part of the caring network, uh, one of their banquets the other day, like oh, yeah, a week or two that's ago. Right. And, they were raising money uh, primarily. They talked about, and we've had people on our show talk about the same thing, the power and the importance of the ultrasound mm. and of how important that is. And this data backs it up that most people, Christian or non-Christian, aren't saying life begins when that baby comes out of the mom. Right. But that right. most people are saying somewhere between conception and birth, somewhere in there, most people believe, is it at the first heartbeat Mm -hmm. Is it at a specific number of weeks? That's right. to be debated by a lot right. of people in right. this in this survey. Uh, but that most people are saying, I believe it starts somewhere yeah. in that range, which again highlights the importance of the ultrasound mm -hmm. for people for for what what at least a caring network they call abortion minded moms, uh, or uh, for them to be able to see the heartbeat, yeah. for them yeah. to be able to see yeah. the baby within them. I think mm -hmm. really makes a huge impact. And this data gets at why it's because most people aren't going, that's nothing until, but yet if you listen only to the media right now, right. if you listen that's only to the big debates, wouldn't you, you would think that Absolutely. most people who are pro-choice only believe that that baby's not a baby. You can right. kill that baby uh, right. until uh, right before birth. There right. are some people who certainly believe yeah. that and some politicians, unfortunately, a lot of politicians but this is showing us that most people think that's really extreme. And I think that's yeah. encouraging because yeah. now we can, through ultrasounds, you can start moving that date back further and further yep. and further. Yep. And so this with, with the Supreme Court and everything, this is a debate that's going to continue to rage. And as we have these conversations, I just think data like this, actual yeah. Uh, data in front of us is really helpful. Yes, yeah, super helpful. Uh, Aubrey, your friend, Brett McCracken, he worked for you, right? He did. I was his boss at in at Wheaton College at the Wade Center. So I, mm. I feel like I made him who he is today, basically. Okay. Uh, my Which, influence on how... in his life. No, Brian, well, don't Brett... argue with me. Yes, Aubrey, that's right. That's all you're supposed sure. to say to that. Okay. Sure. Dep I mean, some people no, might not no, like what he writes, no, you know? No, no, no. 
Oh, good point. And, okay, and, yeah. For the people who like him, I made him who he is. For the people who don't, I had nothing to do with him. <laughs> Brett is the senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition. He has authored many books, including The Wisdom Pyramid, which we had him on to talk about. Uh, but he wrote something fascinating, Aubrey, over at the Gospel Coalition. It says this, why rise and fall narratives are surging in popularity. Let's define this. He writes, the rags to riches tale is as old as time from Cinderella to slumdog millionaire to social network and more. These stories resonate in part because they're aspirational in vividly celebrating unlikely success. They invite audiences to picture themselves on a similar upward trajectory, but a twist on the genre has gained popularity in recent years. Call it the rags to riches to rags tale or the rise and fall narrative. Often mm. cautionary moral tales about the perils of gaining the whole world only to lose one's soul. These narratives deconstruct the success story and temper viewers' enthusiasm for meteoric rise, ambitions in their own lives. So that people like going, hey, there's a, there's a bad side to these rags to riches stories or oftentimes – you know, people who make it out of nowhere end up crashing back down. He said plenty of incredible films have fallen into this category. Cin uh, Citizen Kane, A Star is Born, There Will Be Blood. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but now he's saying in the last few years, it seems like the rise and fall genre has become increasingly popular, whether podcasts about mega church pastors, right? He's referring to the rise and fall yeah. of Mars Hill there. Biopics about corrupt televangelists or TV series about entrepreneurs whose startups rise only to crash. And he's going to give a list of these. But the question he's asking is why? Why mm. these narratives? Why does there seem to be an appetite, not for yeah. the feel-good rags-to-riches story, but the rags-to-riches to rags, the uh, kind of the full circle, which in theory, if you were telling people about this, you'd go, that makes for a depressing movie. That yeah. makes for a depressing TV show. So yeah. uh, if we think he's right, what does it say about us? Why do you think that this has kind of been a rise in popularity? I think part of the reason we like these shows is sort of in response to we, we've seen a lot of movies. Like I think of The Greatest Showman. I think of Hamilton movies that I love. But we've seen a lot of movies and shows that are sort of the, the rising star who actually sort of ends up blowing up their entire lives, ruining their marriage, hurting their kids. Mm -hmm. But then there's sort of no repercussion for it. Like they're still super successful and it's amazing. <laughs> and I, I sort of wonder if we're ready for something a little more like we almost don't want to see these people be successful, which sounds a little weird, but we almost want the good, the bad and the ugly, both as a cautionary tale. But also, I think we're maybe tired of these like rags to riches story that aren't very accurate and where only certain members of the population get to like make their dreams come true. Like I, I, I anyway, I, I'd love to know what Brett thinks. Yeah, well, that's a good segue because he does give his four reasons as to why he thinks rise and fall narratives are becoming more and more popular. Uh, he says, one, it's easier to critique than create. Criticism is the currency of the social media age. Deconstruction is easier than construction. Shaking our heads at the foolishness of fallen CEOs saying, I told you so in response to a startup's mm -hmm. crash uh, is easier. So he says, one, it's easier to critique than create. Two, he says, once laudable, millennial optimism is now deemed toxic posit positivity. He oh, says these narratives appeal in part because they show overconfident, privileged, borderline delusional entrepreneurs <laughs> get smacked in the face with reality. Their idealistic bubbles popped by the harsh realities of an unjust world. So mm. this kind of over positivity that I think he's saying we enjoy seeing that that kind of torn yeah. down. Number three. We have no tolerance for being manipulated by elites. The populism of recent years, coupled with deepening distrust of powerful elites, whether it be Wall Street to D.C. to Silicon Valley, likely plays into the popularity of this genre. Watching very rich, very powerful people get their comeuppance feels like a satisfying payback for the various ways they swindled, manipulated, or otherwise used everyday people to get to the top. It feels like justice is served. And the last one that mm. Brett gives, we like to see justice come to bad, and he puts in parentheses, other people. 
He says, the social media age, able as it is to amplify all manner of maddening reports of injustice, has a way of riling us up with righteous indignation at the evil doers, doers wreaking havoc across the world. So some of the stuff you talked about, Aubrey, but it kind of you know, kind of we're not as positive as a culture. We kind of rail against that. We like yeah. to see the powerful get it. What do you think about Brett's reasoning there? Yeah, I, I think that it's easier to critique than create is really, really um, interesting to me. And and when we even when we watched uh, We Crashed, I was kind of like, man, that's a cautionary tale. And Kevin was like, well, at least he tried. Like, you mm. don't see a lot of people going for it. And so he he wasn't really critiquing him. He was kind of like. I don't know. This is what visionary leaders have to do sometimes to get things done. And so th- that's interesting to me that it. I think Brett's, uh, Brett's right, that it is either easier to critique than create. I still think there are lessons to be learned. And I guess mm-hmm. I'm specifically thinking of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And I'm not saying Brett is saying this, but I feel like there's a lot of people out there saying we shouldn't listen to that. That's right. just like, quote unquote, failure porn. But I think there are major lessons especially because that church was kind of like a microcosm of a movement of churches at the time, that there are lessons we can learn that are really, really important. And it helps to, it helps to have the lessons brought to us. It helps have these things brought to light. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're when, when we're treating them the right way, as in how do I protect ourselves or how does our church protect itself from the same yeah. fate? Uh, I think they are cautionary tales. Uh, Brett ends this way. He says for Christians, relishing the demise of other sinners. uh, Hold on, let's say it again. For Christians, relishing the demise of other sinners is not a good look. Instead, pray for them and pray for yourself. It's the old look at the plank in your own eye uh, and learn the lessons from the, uh, you know, the the documentary you were talking about or from the rise and fall of Marcel, as opposed to cheering on their demise, I think is where Brett is trying to uh, split the difference. So go check that out at the Gospel Coalition. We'd love to know what you think. Yeah. Coming up next, uh, words from David French. To do the right thing, you might have to die. A sobering article, especially in light of what we've seen un- unfolding continually here in Uvalde, Texas. And a lot has been going on since then, Aubrey, of how do we explain this? What do we do? What could yeah. we have done better? Uh, what can we do about guns? What can we be doing about men? All of those are super important topics to discuss. I do want to remind people that... Uh, it's still a time to grieve. It's still a time. The funerals are just starting to happen now. Like, let's not push back the past, past the evil and the horrific nature uh, of what has happened. But there is, yeah. I, I'll read this easy for me to say. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to say it makes it worse. Like, you can't make it worse than the loss of these kids. But mm-hmm. I would say, Confounding, uh, compounding this tragedy is some of the stuff we're reading about what happened with the police response and yeah. uh, maybe what could have happened, the decisions yeah. that were made. And I, I want to be uh, sensitive to, you know, people making decisions right then and there uh, and trying to figure out. But, man, don't you feel like it is just it, with each new bit of news, it's like uh, it's just adding more and more to this tragedy. It is, I yeah, I mean, it, it, it continues to be just unspeakable and horrific. And I think what everyone's, the concern, I guess, and the grief is like, could this have been stopped if things were responded to a different way? And I'm like you, Brian, I, I can't imagine that I know what it takes in a moment like that. And, and so for, I think for any of us to be like, oh, we would have done X, Y, Z, or this should, you know, we don't exactly know, but it does seem like the more and more that's coming out, the more horrific this is, because it seems like it could have been less of a massacre than it was. Mm, The damage could have not been as brutal. And I mean, the hard part in any grief is we want to control it and we want to do what we can to turn back time. And we just can't. And um, at the end of the day, the one responsible for this is that shooter. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet the fact that there were so many, it seemed like points where intervention could have happened, both while the incident was happening and then even some of the signs he showed on Facebook 
I mean, there's there's such deep grief and regret when we begin to consider those things. Yeah, absolutely. And David French uh, wrote a, a pretty hard hitting article kind of looking at the police response. Uh, and it's hard. It's hard to read. It's hard to read. Like you want to just scream, why did you make that decision there? Why did you make that decision there? But yeah. beyond the decisions that were or weren't correct, that weren't made, the why were people told to stand down or whatever, David tries to get at the nature of courage. And it's it's really interesting in light of Memorial Day, uh, this idea of what is courage, Right. And, and he says this, and this is where this article gets really interesting. And I'd love to know your, your, your thoughts on this, Aubrey. He says, uh, that ultimately courage is answering the question, who, whom do you love? And mm. that fear tells us that above all else, I love myself. So don't mm. go in that room. Right. Even if it means wow. protecting somebody else. Uh, wow. if, if primarily I love my, and that's not even necessarily saying all these officers, this is getting away from this specific situation and trying to look at it on a bigger scale. Uh, yeah. courage says, ask the question, whom do you love? And when we answer that question above all else, I love myself. Then there were going to be about my own, um, safety and everything's going to look at through that prism. Uh, but David French writes that when we answer the question, whom do you love? Uh, when the answer is we love you, then that becomes the catalyst for courage. That is people, wow. whether it be storming a classroom where there's an active shooter with an AR-15, yeah. whether yeah. that is storming the beaches of Normandy, whether that is a soldier. I can never understand, if I'm honest, these stories where soldiers dive on grenades to save others, right? Right. Uh, we read those around Memorial Day or whether that's somebody pushing somebody out of the way of an oncoming vehicle. The the question of courage, he says, is an answer to the question of whom do you love? And when the answer to that question is we love you as opposed to we love me, we mm. act in courageous ways that we celebrate at times like Memorial Day or yeah. we celebrate when people run into burning buildings or yeah. whatever else. I mean, he's clear that it's not easy, but that that is the dividing question. I have never thought of it remotely in that way. It, yeah, it's, it's a pretty so. fascinating way, and it's got some biblical overtones to it, don't you think? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. And and I know David, you know, quotes this verse in the in the article, but I was thinking about Jesus talking about whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And then the scripture that talks about like uh, love is laying down your life for your friends, even mm. your enemies, right? And so I, I no greater love than this, Jesus says. Mm. And so I, I do think um, French has got his finger on something that because these police officers waited and waited and waited and waited they were not choosing love for the kids. They were choosing mm. love for themselves. And, um, you know, I, I think the police have acknowledged that they, they made the wrong decision, but thinking about courage as putting someone else before you. And, um, despite you risking your own life, I feel like that has implications in so many aspects of our lives. Like so many of the debates that we're even having on on social media right now politically right now if we were simply willing to say i love you more than i love me it seems like the whole maybe i'm pollyannish here but it seems like the whole rhetoric would change the whole conversation would change the whole state of our nation would change if we would choose self-sacrifice and put other people yeah. first and and um, i think i i think twice. here yeah i think framing that as courage i think is really helpful because yeah. it reminds us that, uh, you know, if the biblical call, if the call in the Christ follower is to be, like you said, self-sacrificial, to be others focused, mm -hmm. to be, I will lay down my life for another. I will put the needs of others before myself. Like those are easy to preach on, really difficult to live. And, <laughs> totally. And as we see the dividing line there of that sort of courage being love, love of others, and the model of that being that Jesus loved us so much that he laid down his life uh, completely yeah. uh, of his own volition. 
Um, man, I, I want to live, I guess I would put it this way. Albert. I want to, we always talk about wanting to live our lives with courage, right? We want to yeah. be courageous, uh, to practically think about what does courage look like being that I'm, I'm loving other people more than myself really raises the bar for, for what we mean when we say, I want to live a courageous life. I, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting to me, even as you're saying this, like this is a lot easier to preach than to do. I mean, bear with me for a second because we're talking about some serious thing. I'm going to say something that sounds a little petty, but I have a point. Like I get angry when I have to be the one to replace the toilet paper roll in my house. Do you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Like yeah. it is in those moments where this kind of thing is tested and like, I don't do well, like, but part of it is because of my, it's like my kid's own selfishness in not replacing the toilet paper roll mm. makes me so bitter and so angry that I get selfish in return. And it's like, that's just the toilet paper. And so being called to do this where we're actually laying down our lives for somebody, mm. it seems like we do need, because it was Jesus himself who modeled this for us, we need the Holy Spirit's empowerment to allow us to love and have courage like that. Absolutely. It's not just going to be thinking about it. It's going to be like transformation in our spirits from the very presence of God causing us to love the way that Jesus loved. And I guess we have to get on our knees and pray for that and ask for more Christ-likeness, both in us and in our communities and in our neighborhoods, and especially in situations that are so horrific like yeah. this one in Texas. Yeah, we long to be a courageous church. And that doesn't mean mm -hmm. just boldness or whatever else. It yeah. means stepping in and loving others above ourselves. What would the yeah. transformation of our society be as that happens? What would the mm -hmm. reputation of the church and ultimately of Jesus be if his followers yeah. live like that? May we be people yeah. who have that sort of courage. Brian, you know, here's something that I love about the common good. We move from a hilarious quiz about was it a Bible verse or an Ed Sheeran lyric? And we go straight into the Southern Baptist Convention <laughs> sexual abuse list. So uh, this is what we do here on The Common Good. We run the gamut of, of all topics. And Brian, I, I want to step back for just a minute because I actually I posted about this on social media, the SBC list. And I had somebody say, what is the SBC? And oh. I have no idea what the story is. So for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with what is happening in the Southern Baptist world right now, could you kind of give us a rundown? Yeah, it is kind of the reckoning that many people have been asking for, right? It is uh, the uncovering, uh, the publicizing or the making public. Uh, of the report of years and decades of abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's gotten to the point now where they're even releasing names, whereas before, you know, they were kind of keeping the names private and uh, trying yeah. to kind of minimize the impact. Now they're just going, here are the names. Here's what we saw happen. And here's the steps we're going to take that this never happens again. And so, yeah. uh, you know, as with anything this big, people have opinions about what the right moves are and what should and shouldn't be done. But the whole Hope is that this will be healing for uh, the victims. It doesn't make it all right, but hopefully uh, will be healing. But the reason yeah. if you're out there and you're like, well, who's the Southern Baptist Convention? The Southern Baptist Convention is the single largest Protestant denomination in our country. Uh, yeah. And so that's why this is a big deal. And, you know, it's uh, sadly come out that over decades, over years, there was a lot of covering up of abuse of power, of sexual abuse. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's going on now. That reckoning that has been debated and argued about for years is kind of happening now. Yeah. And, and part of the heartache is that there were some now not this was not widely known, but some of chur the church officials in the SBC kept a private list of abusive member ministers. And like you mm -hmm. said, Brian, it, in an effort not to, I guess, let this get out and cause a scene, cause a commotion, but they did so at the expense of the the abuse victims. And so the fact that um, now the SBC seems to be finally doing what's right and releasing this list of names, like you said, it, there's some controversy around it, but I would say generally speaking, many of the victims are feeling grateful that this list has, has finally come out. Now, I, Brian, I don't know about you, but I opened up the list mm. and I read 
uh, I didn't read every single name line it was by a line. Long list. I went through. It was a long list. It was almost, I think, two hundred and fifty pages. Um, I went through every page just to get really? a sense of the depth of it. And I think what was there's a few things that were really heartbreaking to me. I mean, one just the stories. I think two the amount of pastors who were repeated offenders in various churches. So you make some assumptions about that, like they got fired from a place because of allegations, but then got posted to a different church and the same thing happened again. Mm. And so that's when you kind of go, some of this repeat behavior could have stopped if people did the right thing at the right time. Um, And I also, you know, I, I want to be careful about this because there are so many faithful pastors out there who who come to who come to scripture uh and disagree about things especially related to like womanhood like i'm talking specifically Mm -hmm. about like a complementarian versus egalitarian stance here but i i came to christ in an sb church sbc church and it was primarily through my sbc leaders that i learned you know these things that women were supposed to be submissive and women were supposed to be docile and women were supposed to be quiet and women were supposed to be XYZ, and that was a godly woman. But I think what was deeply disturbing to me reading the report of these pastors was how much of that, some of it very well intended, meaning to be biblical, some of it in the cases of these pastors felt like it was using the pulpit as a place to groom their victims. Mm. And it just, for me, I, I, I have posted a few times this week about this. I just think anytime we are using the pulpit for coercion, for our own um, domineering reasons. We're doing something wrong, right? Like mm-hmm. I, that's just evil. And it's really gotten me thinking again about like the role of the preacher, the role of the pastor. What does it actually mean to preach God's word faithfully? And so much of it, as we know, because we're hearing all of these terrible tales of pastors abusing their power, um, it's that the life lived by the preacher and the pastor has to be one of forthrightness and integrity as much Mm. as the preaching has to be biblical. Yeah, And we know those things to be true, right? But just I think something about seeing that list the disconnect between like the corruption of the pulpit, the corruption of God's word and the devastating impact of these victims. Uh, it was very, yeah. it was very disorienting and pretty painful to read. Um, simultaneously, on the other hand, I'm so glad this list is out. Mm, mm. So that was my experience of reading it. I don't know if you've read it yet, Brian, but what are your kind of thoughts about these, these names coming forward or about what so I, I just said? I, I do think you're right that it reminds us of the power dynamics within a church setting, big churches and small churches. We see yeah. this over and over again. And when used in, I don't know the right word, nefarious ways, it's very powerful. And uh, it's why I, I'm preaching through the book of First Peter right now. And Peter says to the Christians, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they basically disagree with you, they can't, you know, they, they glorify God because of the life that you leave. And also, you know, in Paul's epistles where he's talking about the role of the pastor and the elder, he regularly talks about things like character, things like integrity and um yeah, our greatest apologetic and, and evangelistic tool is the life that we lead. And I think that's even more so in the life of the pastor who's leading because th- it's such a fine line between power that's abused and power that is handled well. And uh, and so I do think that should be a wake-up call. And, you know, there's a lot of people who don't think these names should be released because not everyone whose name got released, they, they use the uh, the 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 line of credibly accused, basically, like it's credible. Yeah, uh, right. But it doesn't right. mean it's been proven. But I, I don't know. I, I, I'd i rather see this sort of reckoning. And um, this feels like it's purging. It feels like it's healing. Yeah. It feels like yeah. it is necessary to name names. Um, yeah, though, as you said, the list is 250 pages long. I mean, it's really long and that tells you how deep the problem was. And so I would encourage you out there. If first of all, if you're a, if you're a pastor, 
understand the uh, the enormous privilege and burden leadership is, and you must handle it well. But I would say if you're in a, yeah. a church in which a pastor is not handling that power well, that's a reason to get out of there and get yep, out of there fast. That's right. Yep, that's right. That's a good good word for all of us. And we are thrilled today to be joined by a very special guest, Patty Garibay. She's the founder of American Heritage Girls and is passionate about raising godly girls who counter the post-Christian culture. She has an international radio program called Raising Godly Girls. And we are thrilled to have Patty talk to us about how parents and guardians can help their girls prepare to shine the light of Christ in a culture that often rejects Christian values. Patty, thanks so much for being here with us today. It's great to be with both of you. Thanks for having me. Hey, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your radio program, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am. Um, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I'm married to my husband, Pat, and I have been for 44 years. I have four children and I have almost 11 grandchildren. Oh, so my. I've been serving, serving families and youth for a very long time. That's great. Very cool. And Patty, uh, obviously your organization focuses on girls. I've got two teenage girls and a teenage son, so right in the middle of it right now. Uh, Help people understand uh, two things. How is raising girls different? Like what is it specifically about girls? And then what are some of the unique pressures right now that we should be aware of as we're raising girls? I think it's really great that you even brought up, Brian, that girls are different than boys, and they Mm -hmm. are. And uh, we want to maintain that that importance because the Lord has woven them in their mother's womb to be women and women are very relational. So that means friends are very important to girls and not being liked by friends is also very important to girls. And Mm. so the effects of friendship, i.e. social media has a bigger toll on girls than it does generally on boys because of Mm. that relational aspect. So that's Mm. one issue that we're dealing with. And today's girls are also dealing with their identity issues. Now that's been age old, I think probably since the fall of man, women have had problems with their identity, particularly around how they look. But today's culture is having girls question their very femininity, whether or not they are a girl or if they are perhaps a boy, because they may have tomboyish tendencies. Mm -hmm. And over the 27 years of serving as the founder of American Heritage Girls, I have never seen such a cataclysmic change in -hmm. what's going on in the cultural climate Mm -hmm. with girls' identities. That's actually a question that I had for you, Patty. You've been at this for almost three decades now. Talk to us about how you've seen things change over the past several years, especially. What I used to see is a lot of body image issues. And although that has not gone away, to me, the severity of mental health issues are very, is very, very high. Mm-hmm. COVID has not helped that. Loneliness has not helped that. Girls, yeah. again, like I mentioned before, need friends. They need to be wired. Even the introverted girl needs a good friend. Yeah. And so the isolation was so damaging to today's girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the CDC has reported on this, that girls are going into emergency rooms with suicidal tendencies, with, mm-hmm. with cutting and drug abuse because of this loneliness is what it, they're attributing it to. Wow. So it's really important for you to help your daughter to find a place where she can belong, where she feels secure, where she's able to be herself and to understand how God has uniquely made her and to be in a place where she can fail forward or even fall forward when necessary. Mm, That's good. Yeah. Patty, sometimes, especially for us dads, these are hard conversations to have with our daughters, right? So uh, give us some teaching. Give us some counsel. What are the things we should be talking to our girls about? And how do we even begin to have those conversations? You know, it's so easy for us as parents not to want to deal with these tough tough subjects. And honestly, I think we've been quiet for too long. And even the church as a unified body has been quiet for too long. And now we've got these monsters literally lurking outside of our kids' purview that are really wanting to attack them, to to put a target on their back. So the only way that we can stop this from happening is to be able to talk to the girls about what's going on in today's culture, using Mm -hmm. these types of 
cultural indicators to have a discussion, but do it from a scriptural perspective. And so I invite your listeners to visit our Raising Godly Girls blog on the American Heritage Girls website, which is AmericanHeritageGirls.org. And there you can see the blog and it will talk about every issue that is confronting in today's girls and what is a call to action for families? What is a scriptural antidote? Because we have to weave the word of God. The only truth that is lifelong and enduring is the word of God. And yeah. that's what we have to count on, especially when the culture changes like the wind. Yeah, that's mm. great, Patty. Such a great resource that you offer. Um, Patty, what are, I'm guessing that parents come to you with a lot of questions and what are kind of the main themes you're hearing from parents right now? What are they wanting godly wisdom for? Mm. They're wanting to understand how to deal with perfectionism and stress mm. in their girls. Perfectionism is another thing that I believe women struggle with a little bit more than men. Mm. And to understand that in God's eyes, you are perfect. You don't have to strive to do it in your own in your own manner. And so the importance of the identity, we like to say at American Heritage Girls, our goal is to help raise up girls to understand who they are and whose they are. So without undergirding the Lord's identity and his very being within ours, we can't understand who we are because we're made in his image. Secondly, they really are looking for help around the indoctrination and gender confusion that is happening in today's society. And so for that reason, American Heritage Girl developed a guide for parents. It's free of charge, a free download at our site that again talks about raising godly girls guide to gender and identity. You know, they're hearing it from media, no matter how much we try to protect our girls, they're hearing these messages. You want to get in front of it. You don't want to be afraid of it. So first of all, we start in our little book that you can download for free, a glossary of terms. I mean, these terms are sort of different. You've never heard some of these words probably, but your daughter has. And so you need to be informed. You need to have a prayerful soul. You need to be poised in a direction of grace and mercy, not alarm and outrage, because that'll turn your daughter away in a skinny minute. So you really have to be patient with her and be pray for the Lord, the Lord's understanding and the Holy Spirit to really infiltrate your very heart. That's great. And Patty, what should we as parents know about the role of social media right now, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter? What should we know? And maybe what might be a word of wisdom to parents out there regarding social media? Wow. Even Instagram themselves, Facebook being the parent company, did that study. And you may have heard of it about the damage that their own social media platform, they could not ignore the facts, is doing to today's girls. So girls are not just getting the benefits of social media. They're getting the negative attributes of social media. Now, there are ways that we can use it in a positive light. And that is, number one, to monitor it. According to Barna Research, six to eight hours per day, a kid is taking in screen time, and that's mostly from their Mm. phone. Don't let them bring that phone into their own bedrooms at night. Make sure they're getting a good night's sleep. Remember the out-of-doors, and that's what I love about American Heritage Girls, sort of forces that out-of-doors connection in order to have the creator and connect with the creation. And that is to put those phones in a basket at the beginning of those events, because unless you're using it for for taking photos, you don't need that phone. You're supposed to be connecting with each other and with the Lord. Have Mm. some very intentional time when there is no screen time. Please do not bring your phones to the kitchen table. If you're blessed Mm. enough to have an evening meal altogether, you've got to model it parents. And that is an Easy thing for me to say, but a difficult thing for us to implement. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. so true, Patty. It's so good. So, Patty, with a few moments that we have left with you, you've mentioned a website. You've mentioned these events. Tell us where people can find all things American Heritage Girls. Right. Visit our website at AmericanHeritageGirls.org. You can also hit our or click on the blog and check out all the Raising Godly Girls stuff that is going to help you provide tools for your parenting toolbox. And if you are not don't have access to a computer readily, call us at 513-771-2025. Oh, thank you so much, Patty, for being here with us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Love hearing about your ministry and what you're doing. It's good to be with you. 
Again, we've been talking with American Heritage Girls founder Patty Garibay. She has an international radio show that you can catch, or like you said, you can go to her website and find out more about American Heritage Girls. Thanks so much, Patty. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some At the end of every show, one of the things we love to do is bring our listeners something encouraging or challenging or something just to put a smile on their faces. And we cover hard, sad news often here on The Common Good. And so we've been going to a place called The Week where they say it wasn't all bad and they share good news from each and every week. They kind of aggregate the best feel-good news stories. And we like to share those with you because they put a smile on our face as well. And so this is the week's good news from last week, the week of May 26th. Brian, I'll read the first one. Okay, I'm ready. Um, Okay. A teen creates a sports psychology website to help young athletes develop their mental game. Listen to this. Anxiety was interfering with Brandon Shintani's performance on the basketball court. And that's when he realized that for an athlete, mental training is just as important as physical training. Shintani, a 17-year-old high school junior from Ridgewood, New Jersey, Brian, uh, your neck of the uh, woods, out my, became my way. interested. What? Out my way, I said, yes, yes, yes. Out out your way. That's right. He became interested in the concept of sports psychology and wanted to offer a free resource for young athletes. Two years ago, he founded the website minddesignsports.org to help teens strengthen their mental game. A global team writes blogs and records podcasts for the website, sharing information on topics like letting go of mistakes. It's what I would have appreciated when I was younger, Shintani told The Week. Mind Design Sports also has a mentorship program that connects young athletes with college and high school athletes. For Shintani, it's important to him that teens know you don't have to be an athlete to take advantage of the tips and advice shared on the website. It's applicable for anybody, he said. A competitive musician who feels anxious before a big performance can use breathing techniques. I see a lot of sports psychology as life psychology, and these mental strategies can help with anything. That's good. I love that story. What a what a cool dude going after yeah. it and making that website. I love it. Especially from his own issues. Like he came out of there. All right. Yeah. This one's going to make some people cry. Maybe not you, but I think so. <laughs> DNA test leads to reunion of rescue dog with her puppies. A DNS DNA test did more than just unlock uh, the key to Dolly's past. It also reunited the rescue dog with her puppies. Dolly was adopted in Winnipeg by Holly Blair, a pet photographer living in Toronto. Blair told The Week that she decided to purchase an Embark dog DNA test so she could learn more about Dolly's breed mix and was completely shocked when the results came back with information about the puppies Dolly had before she was adopted. I didn't realize they actually connected relatives by matching DNA from the database. I was only focused on the breed ID part. I knew that she had puppies and she had separated too early, but I had accepted that I wouldn't ever get to know about them or be part of their life. Blair contacted the owners of Dolly's puppies and learned they were all now in loving homes around Winnipeg. Blair and Dolly are looking forward to visiting them in the future. And in the meantime, Blair is enjoying all of the ways Dolly has changed her life from teaching her to be patient, compassionate, and protective and tell her and teach her how important love and listening is. She might be a little too attached to her dog, but that's a sweet story. Yeah. I mean, you and I both kind of read these stories and are always like, yeah, but it's a dog. Like, it's a dog. So... For the dog lovers out there, I'm sure you like that. For the rest of yes. us, we're a little bit cynical. Okay. I'm a dog lover, uh, but three. that one goes far. Oh, that's true. You are a dog lover. I, f- I forget about that, but that's a little extreme. Um, okay. A college student discovers a surprise connection between her boyfriend and her late mom. Oh, I I'm need a to little know bit more. nervous about this, yes. but I'm hoping it's going to turn out it's, good. Okay. This is good news, so we, we're going to be okay. Yeah, so it can't, it, can't get, it can't get weird. Okay, a photo snapped more than a decade ago is Leah Menzies' wish come true. Menzies, 18, has been dating Thomas McLeod, 18, for about seven months. When Menzies was just seven years old, her mother died of liver failure, and it made her sad that her mom would never get to meet McLeod. During Menzies' first visit to his parents' house... His mom shared stories about his childhood and asked him to show Menzies a funny picture of him taken at preschool. 
When he took out a photo album and opened it to the right page, McLeod cried out, I couldn't figure out why he was being so dramatic, Menzies told Today. It turns out he was looking at a picture of himself with his preschool teacher... Menzies' late mother. He recognized her face from a photo in Menzies' room, and his mom recalled that she was a kind and really gentle woman. Menzies told today, it is incredible that she knew him. What gets me is she was standing with my future boyfriend, and she had no idea. Isn't that cute? That's a good story. That, That is sweet. That is sweet. I get worried about stories like that when it's just boyfriend. Like, okay, now when you break up, that's going to be years of counseling. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I'm sensing a theme here. Long lost sisters who met after 48 years now work together. Michelle Dugan and Trisha Morgan Tilly have a motto. After being apart for 48 years, they're going to make the best of the time they have left together. Michelle was adopted and told Fox 5 she loves her family. But I just always felt like there was someone else out there maybe. And I didn't know who that was. In 2019, she signed up for Ancestry.com account and found that missing person, her half-sister, Trisha. The women learned that they were both born in 1970. They have the same biological father who died in 2004. Trisha moved to Las Vegas as a child while Michelle moved there in 1994, and they lived a few miles from each other. Their children are also the same age and attended the same high school. The similarities don't stop there. Michelle has spent 25 years as a real estate agent, and at the time that they met, Trisha was taking real estate courses. With Michelle's encouragement, she earned her certification and the pair joined forces to start the Sisters Selling Vegas team with Realty One Group. I now have a best friend and a sister and everything all wrapped up into one. Oh man, that is that so one's a good one. Crazy, that's a good one. I like those reunion stories. Those are those are really fun. All right. Oh man, this one's gonna. Okay, I don't feel a lot of compassion about dogs, but I think this one's gonna get me, Brian. Okay. A baby giraffe is able to walk after doctor made her custom braces. It was a tall order, but um bum. But when Ara Mirzian was approached by the San Diego Zoo Safari Park and asked to fit a baby giraffe with a brace, he accepted the challenge. The giraffe was born on February 1st, and immediately her caretakers noticed her front lip was bending the wrong way. They were concerned that the giraffe would not survive if this wasn't corrected, as she wouldn't be able to nurse or walk around. The giraffe was 5 feet 10 inches tall and weighed 100 pounds, and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park staff decided if they were going to get her properly fitted for a brace, they needed help from an outside expert. Uh, This doctor has been fitting braces for 30 years, but this giraffe was his first animal patient. Using cast moldings of her legs, his team made carbon graphite braces and even added a giraffe pattern. The giraffe only needed one custom brace, and after 10 days, the problem was corrected. It was the coolest thing to see an animal like that walk in the brace, Merzayan told the Associated Press. It feels good to know we saved a giraffe's life. Oh, I like a good giraffe story. Oh That's nice. I love a good baby giraffe story. That's so good. <laughs> All right. Well, there's the good news for you for the week. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We hope those stories put a smile on your face. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.